Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. Today is just cracking me up. I've been, I mean, it started last night when I was doing some political, just my, my fun tweets. You know, as I was talking about the plagiarism, I was making fun of Scott Baio. Because if my friends know me, I'm a, I'm a pop culture junkie. And I was sitting there going, you know, who's, who's speaking Friday? Willie Ames or Nicole Eggert? And just different stuff that was fun. And I put up a meme today and I saw a picture of Scott Baio with his thumbs up. And I said, look, Scott Baio plagiarized Fonzie. Well, the funny thing about this is people get so incensed sometimes and it makes you depressed because, you know, that's what comedy is. Comedy is having fun. And if it's not meant to be mean, it's funny. And it's just amazing. I just, my, I talked about it earlier. My, every time I come back from an episode today, my Facebook page, because this thing I wrote about Trump, which was not a mean, I wasn't slamming him. It was just a conspiracy I had joking around. People are just like arguing and it always cracks me up when people break into these little arguments and they yell and they get mean. And where I love the passion, I just laugh because it's just social media. Anyway, I met my guest on social media, but I've known of him. I mean, you know, I knew him when he did comedy. I didn't know him personally, but I know him when he did comedy and, and, he, and he still does comedy and he's acts and he's been on tons of commercials. My guest is Tom McTeague. How you doing, Tom? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, have you noticed that? I mean, I think you're you're no. You post you post nice stuff. You post you know. I know you're on vacation. You post some good pictures. I believe you went to see James Taylor. Now you post stuff. Now, do you crack up when people just get so batshit crazy over comments that are a joke? Well, I appreciate the the thought that I post nice stuff. I I I I gotta give. Uh, Credit to restraint of pen and tongue on that man. I, I get so jacked up when I read. Like I was reading the thread where where people were getting pissed for you. I can't remember even what it was, but and and I so want to type back. Oh, you're a moron. You know, pull your head out of your ass. And 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 then I don't. I've, there's been so many times that I've written these long screeds <laughs> in response to somebody. And then right before I hit post, I go, ah, fuck it. <laughs> I, I just, I delete it. So it's an exercise in, I guess it's, you know, it's like writing a letter to somebody uh, and then not sending it. There's a, there's a value in writing it, but I don't think that there's much value in sending. I'm the same way. I mean, like my thing today was just a little conspiracy. I didn't think people would be going all over the place. And I'm like, God, you guys know me. It's like last night, the stuff I was putting it, I didn't even, I was I was uh, on a set last night. And I got home, and, I, and then I started posting stuff about, you know, just the speakers. And to me, that stuff's funny. Like, who's going to speak next week? The ghost of Pat Morita and the ghost of Al Molinaro. You know, just basically <laughs> stuff. And people are like... Al, Mar- Al Morita's out. He's, he's uh, Japanese. Yeah. He can't do it. Yeah, exactly. But people yeah, get so I, mad. I mean, Al is in because he's Italian, and if it's in keeping with the theme so far, it's uh, it's uh, the the white Italian guys. It's, yeah, it's just crazy. I just laugh because today was so funny, and I swear every time I go off at two interviews, there's a strange, and I just laugh. I just I love it. I, I love the fact that people are so passionate. But you're right. Sometimes you sit there. I wanted to write something to someone because they were just so what they said was so dumb. And you know, I'm the same way. I start. It's it's only I won't do it like you. The comments. You start typing that comment. And then you sit there and you pause for a second and then you look at it and you go, you know what? I don't, I don't even, I just, I 
backspace at all. I don't even do the, the yeah. copy and paste. I just it's, backspace it's, it till it's done. It's funny because it absorbs so much time and energy, uh, and most of it's negative. You know, at least in this election cycle, so much of it's negative. But after I after I vent, you know, after I've got that little box of text that I you you know whatever, I look at it right before I send it, and then I think I don't really give a shit. I don't care anymore. You know, I mean, I, I, why do I want to get into an argument with a guy? Who I don't even know. Yep. I'm not going to change his mind. I mean, politics these days is is not so much discourse. It seems to me that it's it's mostly people yelling from their side of the fence. It's like having a bad neighbor, you know, and you go, you, your lawn sucks, and he yells back, yeah, well, you you should have cactus. And you're like, I don't like cactus. And he's like, well, see, there you, you know, I mean. It, nobody's meeting in the middle or opening the gate or being a neighbor. Everybody's just yelling over the fence, and it 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 it's very um, time consuming for a lot of people. It's become. But sports. I don't think I don't think anybody's having their minds changed. No, it's it's become like sports. Like I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan. I joke with my friends who are Giants fans. The Giants suck. They're not changing their mind. They love the Giants. My Cowboys friends fans. Cowboys suck. We're not changing our minds, and that's what politics has become. Because you know, you know, it's like if you follow sports, you're not going to change your mind on your team, and right. the the on the field, you know, does the speaking. But now, yeah, it's just it's amazing. Well, and and plus, everybody's always got the out too, where they're you know, if you get into too heated of an argument that you can't back up with facts, the other guy seems to have a, a better grasp of at least debate protocol than you do even if he's wrong way wrong you know and so there's always that backpedaling of yeah well i i don't really care for either politician (laughs) i know i'm like like, i'm like i say the same thing i'm like i'm not i'm not a fan of either but that doesn't stop it but anyway Uh, enough about politics we want to talk about you tom oh Uh, good now 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 you grew up in spokane yeah, Spokane. Spokane. See, I, I did that. I, I know I, I screwed it up. So you grew up in Spokane. Now, as a kid, did you want to act or were you an athlete? Because you're in good shape. I mean, what, what was your destiny as a kid? What did you think as a kid? Did you sit there and go? Did you ever think you would go into acting and comedy? Or, and how'd that all start? Um, wow. I, you know, I, as a kid, I was uh, I had no idea. Um, I was uh, I was always sort of of the opinion that I had really interesting stuff to say and you'd be well served to listen to me um, but I, I, I didn't know how to plug that into a, a, any sort of performance venue and, and I don't even think that was on my radar I, I played the drums uh, in high school for a while and thought boy I'll be a rock drummer That'll, that's what I'm going to do I'll be a, a, a drummer in a band and then I'd Listen to people like Lenny White and Billy Cobham and people with just, you know, art in their drumming and and realized, God, I'm not that good. I'm just not that good and I'll never be that good. You know, I didn't I didn't have the gift that those guys had and I, and I didn't want to settle for doing something that I wasn't capable of being one of the best at, right? And um and then when I was uh, in my senior year in high school, I went to a, a small school called St. George's in Spokane. It's a private school. They uh, decided for me that they were going to take a, a break out of my senior year and send me to uh, Seattle to study with the empty space. Um, they apparently perceived some 
you know, some performance uh, ability in me and, and thought that I'd be well served to at least uh, explore it. So I went to this mini semester in, in Seattle and, and studied with the empty space, um, blocking and stage combat and, you know, a, a variety of theater arts and just fell in love with it. And um, uh, then I graduated and went to Washington State University and majored in English and still wasn't thinking of theater. Uh, and an, an English teacher of mine just out of the blue said, um, oh, by the way, they're having auditions for Equus today, and I think you'd be great as the Alan Strang character, so why don't you go down to the theater department and audition for it. Anybody can audition. And So I, I went to the theater department and wound up landing the role um, of Alan Strang, um, which um, was a, it was an amazing coup, and I didn't I didn't even accept it then. I said, hey, I'll have to let you know. <laughs> and uh, went back home and called my mom, and I said, "Oh man, I got I got the lead in this play, and it's got a nude scene in it, and I don't know if I want to do it." And and she said, "Well, just take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle of it, and in one column." list all the good things that could come of it and in the bad column list all the bad things uh, that could come of it and whichever column is the most full there you have your answer and and so I did that and the only thing that I could come up with in the negative column was people would laugh at the size of my dick okay <laughs> uh, and um, so, so I I I did it and and just fell in love with the the rehearsal process and the memorization and the interpretation and and I just I was hooked so you you're hooked and then now where did your career go from there um so um I I did two years of undergraduate work at Washington State University from from the time I started uh, performing I really didn't spend any time anywhere except the theater department um, did a number of plays and then um, decided at the end of my sophomore year that I really wanted to be a professional actor and um, was going to drop out of college and move to New York and, and uh, study theater there. And <clears throat> so uh, my, fa my father, who was a very practical man, was just like, oh, Christ, oh, my kid. Um, but my, my parents, uh, my father gave me qualified support. My mother was uh, unqualified in her support. And so I moved to New York and uh, uh, lived in a variety of hellish hovels uh, and went to school at the uh, HB studio in, in um, lower Manhattan there and studied acting. And uh, about a year and a half later, I became uh, homesick and packed up from New York and moved back to a girl in Seattle. And uh, uh, that relationship promptly exploded. But at the same time, I was doing local theater in Seattle and, and um, uh, let's see, I start, I, I got into stand-up. In, in, in a really interesting way. I, I was working uh, on a show um, called Bloody Jack, which is probably the worst theater production ever. Why? I mean, it was just ghastly. It was put together by a guy who was a prop builder for magicians, and he fancied himself a, a big magician too. And so he put this theater show together 
that was a magical musical farce. I don't know what the hell. It was just ghastly. And uh, he rented out all these huge auditoriums up and down the West Coast and hired a cast and I think spent his life savings putting this show together and he had dreams that it was going to be a big national tour and go to Broadway. And uh, I was hired on as one of the actors in that cast and we went bankrupt uh, very in very short order in the uh, in Oakland we we played the Oakland's booked the Oakland Civic Auditorium which is probably a 2500 seat house i mean I, I don't know if that's an accurate count but it's a big house and we had a paying audience of one oh wow and the show and the show went on uh and uh so we went bankrupt in Oakland and there was another guy Howie Kirsten in the cast and he was a funny guy and and uh now, let me backtrack for a minute. So I, be, I had become familiar with stand-up, but more as a groupie. I uh, didn't have any aspirations to do it. It felt like a, a real stretch. Um, but I, I, the relationship that I moved from New York back to Seattle for uh, exploded on me, and, and um, I had a broken heart. And so uh, as, a, as a way to... Uh, mend my broken heart or to feel less bad I, I discovered stand-up comedy rooms and I'd go and I'd sit for an hour and a half and laugh and forget my troubles and I just thought it was magical and I fell in love with it um, but not as a possibility for me more as just medicine for my psyche and uh, uh, so anyway um, so I was familiar with comedians in the Seattle area and um, um, would hang around with them and pal around with them and try to have lunch with them and, you know, pick their brains and just be a part of them because I thought it was so cool. And then when we did this show that went bankrupt in Oakland, one of the other guys was a very funny song parodyist, uh, just a funny guy uh, named Howie Kirsten. He's, uh, he passed away about three or four years ago. And um, to keep the the cast of this bankrupt show entertained while we were waiting for funds to arrive to get us back to Seattle. Um, he would play piano and these funny songs in this terrible hotel that we were stuck at on the corner of crack and whore and in <laughs> Oakland. And, and, uh, uh, I said, man, you're funny. You should be a stand up comedian. And he said, I don't know anything about that. And I said, well, I'll write for you and I'll manage you. And I'll get you gigs as a stand-up comedian. So uh, we got back to Seattle, and uh, I wrote a couple of jokes for him and kind of strung together a theme for his musical songs and, and went to all the little open mics around, and he started getting booked. And um, uh, there was a guy who was really mouthy, uh, in the Seattle area who, who said, I, you don't know anything about showbiz, kid. I, I know about showbiz. You don't know anything about showbiz. And he was a comedian. And I said, you suck. I'm funnier than you are. <laughs> I'll prove it to you. I'll write five minutes for myself. And, and that obviously, you know from doing stand-up, proved harder. Uh, right. Harder than I thought it was going to be. But um, I eventually, I, I think I did six or eight open mics and just couldn't buy a laugh. It was just awful, and I quit. I just said, I can't do this. And, and then um, 
The day I quit, I wrote a joke about dogs and cats and the foods that they eat, and I thought, aha. And so I had to go back and try that joke, and, and uh, I don't know, it was five minutes of dreck followed by a joke that made people laugh, and then I went, thank you, good night, and uh, built backwards from that one punchline. So then did you start hitting the scene a lot? Yeah, I found that I was pretty aggressive in terms of wanting to climb the, you know, climb the hierarchy. And, and so I started doing a lot of open mics and, and, you know, this was 1981 maybe. So I was, there weren't a lot of comedians, you know, I mean, now if you go to an open mic, there's 30, 40 people that sign up for 10 slots, I think, you know, but back then, you know, if you signed up for an open mic, if you were willing to wait around until 10 or 11 o'clock at night, you could get on. So I just went to the open mics and, and started doing them. And, and, uh, and somebody said, Hey, I got a gig down in, I don't know, somewhere in South Seattle or Olympia and pays 25 bucks. And I thought, wow, this, you know, this is great. I'm being paid for it. And, and, uh, they were all in, you know, the corner of bars. There was nothing, the, the, the comedy underground was in Seattle, but that was the big club, right? That's where, you know, Gary Muledeer played and Denny Johnston played and Jerry Seinfeld played and I wasn't in that group, you know, so um, you had to start at the little clubs and then you got to open maybe, do an MC slot at, at, at the Comedy Underground and, and uh, um, so I did that and I did whatever I could and booked whatever I could and kept writing and kept a little recorder with me at all times and a little notebook and constantly trying to come up with premises and jokes and a personality and you know i mean comedy is interesting because because you don't know it until you get it right and 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 you start at least i started out trying to construct a, a persona for stand-up when the the reality is the most effective stand-up is your persona right right but but I never thought that was enough. So, you know, you start out as the guy who wears suits or the guy who talks about dogs and cats or the guy who, you know, the guy who whatever. And, and then um, eventually it, you, you kind of carve the fat away and you're left with you and how you feel and what, what your perception of the world around you is. Um, and that takes time. You know, I think we all start out as comedians really fat, you know, and I say fat, meaning in, in terms of all the extraneous stuff that you place as a buffer between you and the audience and your ego, right? Um, and then hopefully, you know, you carve all those little things away and, 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 and what you're left with is a, a, a genuine and unique voice that um, is yours and nobody else's. So you're doing stand-up and you're in Seattle. Now, what brings you down to L.A.? Well, I never gave up uh, acting, right? I, I, I was doing both sort of simultaneously, working smaller theaters in Seattle and, and uh, auditioning when I could and, and, um, uh, and then doing stand-up and, and, and waiting tables. And then eventually I quit waiting tables uh, and just did stand-up full-time and always, always with the eye that I wanted to compete in, in the bigger leagues, right? So... Um, by that time, I'd probably been doing stand-up for about five years, and I was headlining in Seattle, and I was headlining in 
you know, the rooms in Canada, uh, Vancouver and, and, and Victoria and Oregon and, and uh, some work down in, in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And, and, uh, and then in 1986, I thought I was ready, um, at least competitive. And so I moved, uh, moved to Los Angeles, just packed all my stuff in a car and drove down to Los Angeles. And got a little apartment in Hollywood. Lived in Hollywood. Do you remember what street? June Street. Okay, I always, I always wonder because I said I my first place was in Hollywood too, and it's yeah. funny. So you get down, and now, now where where do you start doing? What do you start doing with your career once you get down here? Uh, well, I st- I had a lot of road work. You know, there was I don't even know if they're still around. I think there's one punchline in Atlanta, but at that time the punchline had probably six or seven rooms scattered throughout the south i was doing all the john fox uh gigs so i was working the punchline in in san francisco rooster tees in in uh sunnyvale um uh there were a number of clubs scattered throughout texas so i i I was doing a, a fair amount of road work and then trying to stay in town as much as i could uh, to work at the improv, you know, so you audition for Bud and eventually he gives you the nod and gives you late spots. And, and then if you, you did well, you know, you got better and better, better spots. And I was working, um, who was I working with? Jeff Altman was headlining and I was, I think, middling at the, uh, at the punchline in Atlanta, the Sandy Springs room. I don't know if you ever worked that, but, um, he said, "You got a good look about you. You you should try getting into commercials." And and I said, "Yeah." And I don't have an agent. And he said, "Well, I got an agent. I'm with William Morris. I'll I'll put in a good word for you." So when we got back to L.A., um, he set up a meeting with with his agent uh, at William Morris, uh, a woman by the name of Betty Fanning, who was a terrific uh, terrific agent and and a, a hell of a nice lady. And she's married to Chuck McCann who's been in show business forever. Uh, And uh, so uh, I went in and met with her, and um, uh, she, I guess, decided that she wanted to try me out. And on the way home from that meeting, she set me up with an audition uh, with Danny Goldman for some commercial for something. And I I went in and didn't get the job, but uh, Danny's feedback to her was strongly positive and and they signed me at William Morris so um, and then I, it, it took probably two or three months of, of auditioning around and I, I think I got my first uh, booked commercial was a uh, jack-in-the-box ad and uh, jack-in-the-box was so happy with me they hired me I think for three or four or five more other jack-in-the-box ads um, and it just sort of started rolling. I mean, I, I went to, I went to L.A. thinking I was an actor, and I came out, you know, very much as a salesman because I was good at I was good at commercials. It was really, you know, I thought I was going to get, you know, a, a series and movies, and you know, and it turned out I just had this really good knack for selling stuff naturally. Yeah. So were you getting acting work too? I know, I know, I, I know. On your IMDb, you were on an episode of Jake and the Fat Man. Is that one of your first? Yeah, I think that was that was either the first. I think that was the first theatrical gig that I booked. I was with Gersh 
theatrically. I'd gotten at some point somebody noticed me, whether it was stand up or doing a, a commercial that was a you know a, a commercial that got noticed or something. And and so ABC handed me a, a development deal. Um, they had a a plan to possibly they didn't have any idea they were just snagging talent and throwing them a, a small stipend and saying if if you do something this year it's going to be with abc because we're big fans and um so uh i'm trying to remember what was i talking about anyway i i got um the development deal with abc and i uh booked a couple of you know smaller you know parts on Jake and the Fat Man and and a made for TV movie from Disney and then um and then that was it on that development deal. I mean nothing really came of it with ABC and and um so it was it was basically just auditioning and every time there was a pilot uh that was being made off of a Tom Hanks <laughs> movie I wound up I wound up being the guy that was in front because uh, I looked like Tom Hanks, right? So they were trying to turn Splash into a a TV series and Big into a TV series, and and uh, I had a spectacular run of uh, de- uh, of um, deals. Uh, you know, you go in and you sign the deal memo before you audition, um, the test deals for TV series, and I think I had. Uh, 27 test deals Ooh. without a booking. Oh man. Yeah, it was getting really nasty and and uh and I think you know, Steve, I I I think I just wanted it so badly. You know that I I was just a uh, I was a great auditioner until you signed your name on the dotted line that said if we hire you you're going to make $50,000 a week, you know. And then I'd go into that room with those Five, ten, twelve people looking at me and have to do it right, and I couldn't. I'd fuck it up, you know. So some of them, you know, to be fair to myself, some of those parts weren't ever going to be my part to begin with, you know. But um, probably a substantial number, um, I just choked in the audition. Now, how did Baywatch come along? It was just another audition, and I, I went out to. Uh, a studio in Santa Monica. They had they had they had been with NBC. They left NBC uh, because I guess NBC didn't pick them up. And then the Scotty brothers bought them for syndication. And so uh, Parker Stevenson had left the show when it went off the air from NBC. And they needed a they needed somebody to replace uh, to be not replace Parker, but to be be a new lifeguard character. And um, so I just went out to the audition, and, and uh, I think I was in the right place at the right time. And, and uh, they were looking for sort of a comedic relief lifeguard, um, <laughs> which if you've, if you've ever seen Baywatch, they were thoroughly incapable of utilizing. Um, but, uh, yeah, wound up, wound up uh, booking that job and, and uh, had, a, had a part on a humongously popular TV show for all of one season. Yeah, what was that like? I mean, were you getting recognized? Because people probably recognize you from all your commercials. But... Um, no, I wasn't being recognized. It, you know, I mean, Baywatch wasn't, was a huge international hit, 
but it became a juggernaut after I left the series. So uh, when I left, Billy Warlock left, Erica Laniak left, and uh, and then uh, they brought on Pam Anderson, and that's when it really, you know, the, the, that the first couple of years with with Pam Anderson and and the rest of the people that they brought on to replace the lifeguard cast that had had uh, left that's when it really took off you know i mean she i i think that i i think pam was probably 75% of the reason that show really took off but it was popular overseas it wasn't particular you know it was always sort of a considered sort of a, a theatrical joke in the states so you're working that now you get that's done now are you still doing stand up and you're still going out for commercials yeah yeah i was doing it all simultaneously and voice work and um you know i always i, I always figured if i if i had a number of like a juggler I, I i i had theatrical and commercial and stand-up and voice those were the four theatrical balls that i juggled or showbiz balls and 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 so when one or other of them wasn't really producing income a couple of the others were um so at any given point, you know, maybe voiceover was pulling the financial train and at another time, you know, I'd, I'd have a, a string of commercials. Crap, I, I, sometime in the 90s, and I couldn't tell you the year, uh, I had 22 national commercials running at the same time. And um, that's a ton. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's insane for a, someone to have that in a career. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was watching the NBA finals that year and, and, and one commercial break had – Tom McTeague commercials back to back to back, three separate commercials on one program, and they were all me selling different products. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I just I kept doing the commercials, and and it kept uh, uh, paying the bills, and and occasionally I'd I'd, I'd luck into a good VO campaign, um, and continued getting guest star stuff, and uh, never really clicked in film couldn't couldn't really make much headway in film and um and then just kept doing stand up as well what were some of the voiceovers you did well you know what i it, i don't know i mean compact computers um uh, barks root beer um uh kentucky fried chicken uh you know i mean the 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 list i i, I tried to add it up at one point um, and, and I think I did somewhere in the vicinity of 350 or 400 on-camera ads and probably at least half that many national VO, VO uh, jobs. So it's a, it's a ton. You name a product, chances are <laughs> I sold it. So, so you're doing that. Now, I mean, now when do you leave L.A.? Well, I left LA in uh, 2007. Um, I uh, had been uh, married and, and uh, divorced, and my wife uh, moved to Texas, where she was from, uh, with our daughter. And uh, um, and so I was living in LA, and they were living out here. And uh, in uh, uh, 2007, uh, she committed suicide. Sorry. And so, um, 
so I moved down here to uh, to be with uh, our daughter. I thought, you know, my ch my my choices at that point, as I saw them, were move my daughter back to L.A. Uh, or I moved, or I or, or I move here to uh, the Austin area, and and um, it felt like my daughter had already given up enough, you know. Uh, so I moved here. Well, you moved to Austin. One, I mean, Austin was up and coming, but I mean, now it's exploded so much. What was it like when you moved back there, when you moved down there? Well, I, I actually moved to Georgetown, which is a exurb of, of Austin. Uh, it's about two small towns removed, but, um, you know, Austin, it's, it's really exploding now. I don't know if it's exploding in terms of uh, my business, you know, in terms of show business. It was doing really well, and then uh, the governor uh, pulled all the tax incentives uh, out from the uh, production business here. So the movie business, which looked to be really, really getting ready to kick ass, um, uh, slowed down substantially. Um, there's still some stuff being shot here and good stuff. You know, I mean, Boyhood uh, was here and, and uh, American Crime, I think, is still being shot here. Um, <clears throat> so there's some good stuff happening but the city itself because it's such a tech hub has just drawn a huge influx of population you know so um the city is uh it's it's vibrant and bustling and uh choked uh, choked with traffic now when you move back there what was your plan on pursuing your acting i mean did you have a, a plan i mean i know you went back for your daughter but did you have a plan of like because you're not in la anymore what was your thought process of how you're going to keep working to be honest with you i didn't know i didn't have any idea at all the the you know the the main thing in front of me was to to try to stabilize my daughter's life um and uh i didn't i kind of thought it was over i mean that was aside from grieving the death of of, of my ex i i think there, there was a big part of that transition for me that was grieving the death of my career because I didn't believe that it was possible to pursue what I what I had been doing for so long here you know I mean in LA I was a pretty well-oiled machine you know I mean my my agents were absolutely great and my reputation was intact and I could work in any of the clubs that I wanted to and did and and here I was uh, an unknown commodity and um, and I really thought it was totally over um, and uh, uh, and so I actually, <laughs> it's so scary to even think about, because I had no idea, I didn't, you know, I was a single parent, and, and I didn't want to leave my daughter alone for great chunks of time while I hit the road, right? Right. So I was looking for um, some way to uh, make a living here, and I actually uh, uh, met with a guy about buying his Pepperidge Farm route. Okay. You know, I was going to drive a fucking bread truck and stock shelves. Um, and uh, it was it was pretty soul crushing. I mean, it was a rough time. There was a, a, a big chunk of time that's probably 18 months from the time. I mean, you get that phone call and you get on a plane. And that was the last, you know, the last I lived in L.A. I mean, it was an overnight thing. Right. Um, uh, so it's probably 18 months of being here where. You know, I was living uh, pretty close to the vest, 
and and trying to make everything last and the money last and and then um wound up booking a big vo campaign uh and uh out of my closet you know i, I, I put a, a microphone in a closet and put together the apparatus that i needed to audition for uh, uh for voice work and and was fortunate enough to 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 book a whopper and so uh that helped and then uh because i i didn't have to go out of town as much i was able to go out of town about half time and and uh, started doing more ships you know working on cruise ships and and uh, and then auditioning here when 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 it was available and then being a full-time dad now what's the ship process like it seems i know so many people are on ships now and it's just uh is it you do one show? I mean, what what is it? What is the life of a ship comic? I mean, there's so many different cruise lines now. I see people, you know, going over, you know, out to Iceland, all these places. What cruise lines do you work for, and what does it entail to be a cruise comic? How much time do you have to do? How many shows do you have? I work uh, primarily for Royal Caribbean and Princess now, um, and I probably do 15 weeks a year something like that and uh, you fly into the port overnight uh, at a hotel wherever that is and then you join the ship uh, and you get on and, and depending upon the cruise line Royal Caribbean generally wants a 45 minute uh, or a, a, a 30 about a 30 minute family friendly show and then another 40 30 to 40 minute late adult show uh, so you know, they want about an hour's worth of material, maybe an hour and 15, uh, including the adult set. Um, Princess doesn't have a late adult show generally, so they want everything family-friendly, and they want, uh, and, and it varies, Christ. I don't know from week to week what they're going to ask for, but it, it, you generally need to be prepared with about uh, probably 75 minutes of family-friendly material that'll work for a, a, a wide diverse crowd and then you deliver that anywhere from you know you'll do one show and two or three seatings of that one show and then two days later a separate a, a new show and two or three seatings of that show so six performances a week something like that now has your writing style changed since you know you started back in LA and then also because you have to do the family friendly and different stuff like that does it really make you concentrate on writing different sets? Uh, well, it's a, I mean, that's a stretch. That's a, for me anyway. I'm not a very PC guy. So, so having an hour and 15 minutes of, of unoffensive family material or, or presumably unoffensive material is, is a lot. Uh, it's a lot of time. Um, so when, when I was making the transition from, from being a club act, uh, to, to doing ships, I tried to rework as many of the jokes as I had already into a f less offensive format. Right. Um, so if it was if it was a language, if 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 the language was offensive, I tried to find more creative ways to use language to to express the same thing. My my act, as far as ship acts go, um, my act really toes the line. Um, but I get get away with uh, I get away with a lot because I'm such a charming little shit. Uh, so uh, 
you know, you win the crowd over and then you can do what you want. But, um, uh, yeah, I think my writing style is, is probably matured somewhat. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's changed. The things that make me laugh still, still make me laugh. Um, but you're, you're pointing them towards somebody who's, you know, on, on one end, maybe 75 or even older and on a younger end, who's four. Right. As opposed to that, you know, hip twenty-something crowd. So you've really, it's 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 a different animal. You know, ships is just it's a it's a different animal. It's still comedy and it's still really fun, but uh, it it there was a learning curve involved in in getting my feet underneath me in that in that venue. Now, when you're not on the ship, are you doing comedy around Austin? It was is it the Velveeta Room? Is that the club there, or is you don't know. No, I'm not. I, as I said, I mean, you know, I moved here uh, under a uh, under duress, and and nobody knew who I was, and um, and I think I I called uh, uh, Rich Miller, who books the the Cap Cities Club, which is the main club here, and I said this this thing has happened, and I now live about 20 minutes from your club, and boy, if you got anything, I don't know how I'm going to make a living. If you got anything, um, you know. I'd be happy to step in and, you know, co-headline, middle, whatever, but I need, I need work. And, and Rich was a, a spectacular dick and said, yeah, I don't see it, Tom. I just, you know, I mean, it was just appalling. And uh, so I thought, fuck it, I'm not even going to try. You know, um, that's the main room here. And, and uh, I thought that he was uh, so lacking in, in uh, compassion that uh, I decided I wasn't going to spend any of the time that I had home doing work here, so I didn't. Now, the acting career, you're still acting. Now, there is productions. How did you get back into that? Did you have to get a new agent, or did you have your, your old agent's call, or how did you get into the whole acting career? Well, I had, a, I had a, a, an agent here, and I still have an agent, but it's a different agent, who uh, was the, the agency involved in... Um, the voiceover work and um, and Boyhood, and then uh, have a new agent now that is is a, a much better agent, smaller agency, um, and I've been doing you know more episodic stuff for them. But Boyhood was just one of those things about being in the right place at the right time. You know, it 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 fit in the middle of my travel schedule where I I went in and and um, uh, met with the director and and. Uh, uh, you know, Richard Linklater is a phenomenally talented guy, and I, I was, you know, un, unfortunately not particularly aware of his work. I remember dazed, <clears throat> excuse me, dazed and confused, <clears throat> but I didn't really uh, know what this project was, and I knew from my agents that they'd been filming it for seven years. And I thought, oh Christ, this is this is somebody's vanity project that's never going to see the light of day. Christ, they've been filming it for seven years. What shot does this have at being anything? You know. <clears throat> so I went in with absolutely zero pressure on myself, and uh, uh, met with him and and uh, Eller, who who played uh, played the boy, and uh, we improved and and uh, uh, Rick liked my work and and booked me. What was it like to be back in front of the camera? I mean, especially it's a movie. I know, as you said, you didn't think it would be anything big, but it must have been a good feeling to be back in front of the camera. 
it's always rewarding, you know. I mean, being able to be an being an actor is a, a, a little bit of an exercise in frustration because so much of the time, all you're doing is looking for work. You know, whenever you get work, uh, it's it's terrifically rewarding, and and then um, to find yourself in a in a project, which honest to God, I mean, I shot the thing and forgot about it because it was, you know, it was such a small budget thing, and and I couldn't imagine. You know, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't, you didn't go into it and they said, here's the seven years we've already shot, here's the, you know, six more years we're going to shoot once you're done. They just said, here's your scene. And so it, it really felt like I was just, you know, I, I really wanted to nail this scene, but um, I didn't think much more about it. And then when it, it got released and it, you know, went to Cannes and won you know, the Golden Globe, and it's getting a lot of buzz, and, and people are starting to talk about the scene that I'm in, um, uh, in articles about the movie, and I was like, what? You know, what is this? And then it started getting Oscar buzz, and, you know, the rest, the rest is history. It was a hell of a good movie. But did you also yeah. show up in the scene at the, uh, at the, at the party? Uh, no. Okay, no. You're, you're one scene. okay, so now you do not, now, now also you were in The Descendants. I wasn't in the Descendants. That's a great question. <laughs> uh, but my name is in the title or in in the uh, 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 Descendants because I have a second cousin whose name is Tom McTeague, and under SAG rules, if you're going to list yourself as Tom McTeague, that's me. And uh, he didn't go as Thomas or. Tommy, he went as Tom McTeague, so that shows up on my IMDb, but uh, wasn't in the film. See, that's screwed up. You gotta, you gotta get that off there. I don't care. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a pretty good, it's a good movie. It's a pretty good it's, credit. It's a great conversation starter. Plus, I got paid for it. I had to give him the money, but they sent me the checks. Oh, well, that's not bad. Yeah. So now, now, how do you get the voiceover stuff nowadays? I know you have your, and it seems everyone can do it. I see John, you know John DeCrosta? I, I I don't know John. I know of him, but I'll see him. He has like he shows pictures of his little setup, and you have it in your closet. How does right. a voiceover process happen for you now? Is it stuff based in Texas, or is it stuff based in LA, or how do you get the auditions from that? Your agent gets them, but how does the whole process go through? It's based uh, wherever the ad agency is. Uh, so uh, you know, it could be North Carolina or Chicago or New York or LA. And then they put out a, a, a casting spec on it with a script, and that goes out to whichever agents, you know, are dialed in either with that agency or with Voice Bank or you know some other sort of clearinghouse for those auditions. And then the agent sends them on to me, and I uh, audition at my home with my computer. Uh, I have a, 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 a very nice microphone, uh, and then I also have. Uh, a Yeti, a couple of different Yetis, one for travel and one for desktop, and uh, and then a mixing program called Audacity, which is a very simple but very effective tool for that. And I record them, and then I send them off into the ether. And sometimes I get booked, and most of the time I don't. But you know, VO is the best job in the business. It's it's incredibly competitive, but you know you're you're paid like you're in show business, and you get to maintain your anonymity. Now, if you get booked, do you have to go and record it somewhere, or can you record it at home? No, you need. I mean, I I guess there are people who have a studio set up where they can actually 
link in, but no, you, m most of the time they'll book you and then they book studio time in whatever town you're in and, and you go in and they do a, a, a satellite or an internet link up uh, so that they can hear you and direct you in real time. Um, and that's how that works. You never, I mean, I, you, most of the time you never see the people you're working for. You see the studio tech, but you just hear them, hear them through your headset. Here's a tech question for you. How do you switch Audacity to an MP3? Because don't you usually need an MP3 when you send this stuff? I use a program called Switch, uh, which is a, a free shareware program, and it's very effective. And you just drag. You, you, I, I export out of Audacity as a WAV file, and then I just drag the WAV file onto the Switch icon and tell it I want it to be an MP3, and it turns it into an MP3. See, that's good. That's because my thing reports an MT3, but then I screwed something up a few weeks ago. I had to get someone to transform it, and they put it into a wave, and the wave file was so big, I couldn't upload it to my site. So luckily, I had a guy who took care of it because I was on his podcast. And he I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if there's a, if there's a size constraint uh, for Switch. I don't think there is. I mean, it, but, but uh, yeah, just... Look for uh, Switch on the on the internet and download it and give it a shot because it's I, I found it to be super super simple and very effective. Now, how do you enjoy working on the cruises? Like, what do you do with your downtime? Because it seems like you have said six shows. You're there for a week. What do you? I mean, I know you get to see a lot of beautiful places, but does it get old after a while? And oh, sure. And do you miss the comedy club feel? I mean, there's a certain feel of a comedy club. I mean, did you ever sit there and, and miss that? Uh, some. You know, the, I, I still do uh, Brad Garrett's room in Vegas one or two times a year. Um, I'm doing uh, a really gorgeous new room, surprisingly, uh, in Spokane called the Spokane Comedy Club, but it's put together by a, a guy who's a comedian who really knows how to put a room together, and so I'm doing that uh, uh, next year, and and so I, you know, I'll sprinkle three or four clubs into my year, um, but you know, by and large, comedy club audiences are really uh, uh, great. You know, they're they're fun to work for and they're really live. But um, you also have that where you have to contend with a, a lot of alcohol consumption because they're making their money by by getting people hammered. And you have the uh, you know forty five minute drink ticket lay down on the table where the crowd kind of murmurs amongst themselves trying to figure out who bought what and drank what. Uh, so I don't miss that. Um, I guess I yeah I mean I like ships. I'm really grateful to have a venue, you know. Um, and I think clubs now uh, the way guys make money in clubs is merch. As far as I know, I mean, I've been out of that for a while, but I, I think if you're going to make a lot of money in clubs, you've got to sell a CD or a DVD or a T-shirt or a hat or a slogan or something because the clubs just don't pay that much. Right. Um, and the ships are the ships are pretty good. I mean, it's it's not, you know, I'm 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 not. I'm <laughs> not deeply wealthy, but it's a it's a nice little addition, you know, to the monthly budget. Now, the crowds are good. The demographics about right, you know. Yeah, what's it like though when you're on the boat the whole time with the crowd? Like, like if you get a heckler, 
and then you see them. I mean, it's like being in the lobby of a comedy club for a week. Okay. <laughs> it's, I, I, I tend to uh, wear a hat and uh, glasses when I'm off stage, and, and uh, I'm, not a, a, I'm not a big social animal, and I sure don't need, you know, I, I just don't need the adulation. I mean, there's, there's guys who park themselves right in the middle of it all and are always palling around with everybody they meet on the ships. So. I've seen the pictures on Facebook. Yeah, and that's not me. Um, so I'll, I'll do the shows and uh, go back to my cabin and, uh, you know, I'll go to the gym, I'll read. I read voraciously when I'm on ships. Um, so I catch up with all the books that I haven't read. Um, and uh, if, if I'm going someplace interesting, I, I try to see the sights. Um, the trick is staying active and doing something. You know, I mean, I know an awful lot of guys who work on ships that never come out of their cabin, but to perform, and then they go back in. You know, and and I, I don't want to live like that. But um, yeah, I'm just grateful to just have a venue. You know, where I can still still try new stuff and still get the response. And and it's a challenge. Uh, each each cruise is a specific challenge. You know, you might do one that's a spring break cruise. So you've got a lot of unruly 17-year-olds. And and uh, then you've got, you know, older cruises that go to Alaska, and that has its own uh, challenges because the crowd demographic is anywhere, you know, 55 on up, you know, and a lot of it's on up. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I just I still like doing it. I, I the the travel is incredibly painful. I, I don't like the travel at all. Um, but everybody has something about their job they bitch about, right? The job itself, the being on stage part, I absolutely love. Now, is there more than one act on the boat when you're on, or is there just you? Uh, there's generally a, a, a variety act, so you'll have a juggler or a magician of some sort. And um, and then a musical act, and sometimes there's camaraderie, and sometimes there's not. Now, yeah. now, do you have to eat in a certain like the galley with the crew, or can you eat anywhere? Or <laughs> no, man, no. I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm booked as a passenger, right? So I'm a passenger who's making money. Uh, so I have I can go to any of the restaurants or any of the bars or any of the any of the places on the ship that passengers go, and. Uh, I generally eat in the buffet just because I don't like parking myself in a dining room and, and getting fed butter. Right. <laughs> they, they feed you a lot of butter and salt on those ships. Um, so, that's so funny. So now, now, do you have any cruises coming up? Uh, I do, actually. I'm, uh, I think I'm off for the next couple of weeks. And then uh, at the end of this month, um, I pick up a ship in San Francisco and take it to Juneau, Alaska. And then I get off and fly back home again, and then I fly my daughter, I'm, drive my daughter out to L.A. She's now 21, and, and she's decided she wants to live in Los Angeles, so I'm going to drive her out there. Maybe you'll come back. Maybe I will. I mean, would you, would you think of moving back to L.A.? To, I mean, you still, you still have, the, you know, you have a, a good resume. I mean, you, you don't lose the voiceover stuff. You still have a good look for commercials. You should think about it. Well, I I have thought about it, and, and um, they, well, we'll see. I've got a, I, you know, Jeff Stilson. Uh, he was on my show, yeah, but now he was living in Australia. Now he lives here. 
yeah, he's 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 got a place there, and he's he's kindly offered his guest house if I want to come out and take another shot at it, and we'll see. You know, I mean, I'm I'm really content with how quiet my life is now. Um, where I was really worried when I left LA that there, you know, it was the end of everything. I found that, you know, if you do good work, people find you no matter where you are, and um, with the internet, I can do VO from wherever I am. Um, and uh, it's just kind of a nice, quiet life without having to drive out to Santa Monica oh, God. to go, hey, buy the gum, I, you know, or, 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 or try to impress a 20-something, you know, studio exec. But who knows? You know, stranger things have happened. I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm still capable and still interested. Do you ever think of doing a, like, cartoon voices or anything like that or, or that kind of stuff? No, I... I used to have this running joke with some friends of mine. I'd walk into my VO agent at William Morris uh, and, and and say, Hey, Tim, I got a new voice. It's the angry squirrel. What do you think? <laughs> and <laughs> every every time it was something else, I'm the, I'm the befuddled platypus. And, and uh, because he was always in charge of animation and he never gave me any animation shots. But... My, the, the VO work that I get is large. By and large, it's my voice, right? And uh, there are, are various. Uh, I get, there's various uh, incarnations of my voice, but but for the most part, when people hire me to do VO work, it's because they're hiring my voice and not a not an angry squirrel. Well, that's <laughs> good, man. <laughs> we got to wrap up soon. How do you know Larry Poindexter? Larry and I were uh, audition mates. We auditioned for all the same stuff for years and years and years. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thrill now whenever I get to watch TV and, and see, my, see my stable mates uh, doing good work out there. And Larry's, Larry's one of those guys who, you know, I mean, he certainly held on to his good looks. He's taken good care of himself, and he's worked really consistently for the past 35 years, you know. Was, he's he's a, a quality guy. Was Starzik one of those guys, too? Who? David Starzik. You don't know him. No, he's, the name. The name sounds familiar. It's always like Larry and Starzik and Spencer Garrett. There's like that whole group of people. It's so funny. Yeah, there's. It's it's really fun to watch these guys. You know, I'll I'll turn on the tube uh, and and get to catch them on whatever show I'm watching. And I was. It always makes me excited for them. And I'm glad to see they're still being hired. It's good at, at this old age. I want to thank you for coming on, Tom. I'm glad we could do this. I know I talked to you a while ago, and then I lost, I lose tracks. Things gets busy. Now, do you tweet? <laughs> really poorly. Uh, last time I tweeted, I think my daughter went through my Twitter feed and went, "This is stupid. That sucks. Why would you tweet that?" What, what, what's your Twitter name? Uh, I think it's Tom McTeague, okay. isn't it? I guess I don't know. I, I'm going to go find you. But uh, so you tweet, <laughs> and uh, and and then you're on Facebook. So and people, do you have a website? Uh, TomMcTeague.com Okay, so people go check out Tom and uh, yeah, if you're going on the cruises hopefully you're going on the cruise with Tom and so follow him on Twitter even though he tweets badly we'll, we'll hey, I, would, I would love Here's, I think I've got 37 Twitter followers but I swear to God if a bunch of people listen to this and they want to follow me on Twitter I, I swear to God I'll start tweeting I'm going to go on Facebook and get your Twitters at people so follow him follow me on Twitter I'm at CooperTalk go to my website CooperTalk.net I have over 530 episodes, email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'll get back to you. Uh, 
Facebook, Steve Cooper. There's also Cooper Talk Radio. I really don't post on Cooper Talk Radio. Words with Friends, because I love playing people. Is all do that, and that's uh, Cooper Talk One. Same with Instagram. So keep following me. Keep following Tom. This has been a, this has been a fun day. So you guys, I'm going to be hanging out. Follow Tom on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, go to my website, stopthesalt.com, to buy my cookbook. And that's about it. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week. <laughs>